All right, if you'll turn with me tonight to the 22nd chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 22. I've entitled our study tonight, He That Soweth Iniquity. He That Soweth Iniquity. Uh, Proverbs 22, verses 7 through 9, beginning there in verse 7, it says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity, and the rod of his anger shall fail. He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. In these three verses, there are really three themes. There's a theme of borrowing, a theme of sowing, and a theme of giving. Now, it's tempting to run to what appears to be the obvious application or interpretation that this is a passage about borrowing and lending. Is it right to borrow? Is it wrong to borrow? And that's not the primary intent of the passage. The borrowing and the lending that's being given as an illustration here is illustrating what the sowing iniquity has to do with. It is generally understood and generally accepted in most societies, uh, and we've seen this and we'll talk about this in just a moment, that primarily the rich in a society, those who have been gifted riches or have riches given to them by the Lord himself, generally rule over the poor. Now remember, we saw back in the beginning of this chapter, in Proverbs 22, verse 2, the Bible tells us that the rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And of course, in that study, we looked at that and we realized that when referring to the rich and the poor, we're looking at two different types of people. It's not a value people, but just different, that humanity is different. There are rich and there are poor, but we also learn that they are equal standing or equal footing with God. That verse declares that the Lord is the maker of them all. Uh, the Lord makes the poor, the Lord makes the rich. Uh, it is not uh, something that man does on his own. So the rich and the poor meet together. And that's what it says there. But what we see from the passage, especially here in verses 7 through 9, is even though we see these principles of the rich and the poor meeting together, the writer here, Solomon, shows us that when it comes to the things of the, this life, okay, we know that the rich and the poor are equal. They meet together. God's the maker of them all. But when it comes to the matters of this life, there is a great difference. The difference is, is those who are poor typically will be in subjection to those who have much. And because of the dependence of the poor on those who are rich, there is going to be a sense and a need of dependence. The poor are going to depend upon the rich to provide. So the poor expect those who have to give. The poor expect to receive support. Now, the rich rule over the poor, typically, but too often the rich who have been given those riches by God become filled with pride and they become very rigid in how they support or what they do towards those who are in need. 
Now, one thing we have to keep in mind is the rich in this world who may become tough, who may become rigid, who may become filled with pride are opposite of what God does. God does not become rigid with pride. God does not become harsh towards the poor. God despises none, whether they're rich or whether they're poor. But we understand that part of the affliction of the poor here and what Solomon is writing about here is that there is an expectation that the poor are going to be independents. Now again, this is not a, this is not a study tonight about uh, whether or not the, uh, what the, the attitude of the, the, the borrower who's borrowing money and the lender should be necessarily, but he uses an example of a borrower and a lender to describe how this can be misused. The rich rule over the poor, and because they become often filled with pride and rigidness, they begin to demand things from the poor that the poor cannot meet, things they cannot do for themselves. Oftentimes, the poor become servants to the rich. Now, in the context, what Solomon's writing about here, this was very common. As a matter of fact, many of the commentators take this passage to be speaking about those who were servants and the rules of servanthood and how a person became a servant, and when they were to be released from that servicehood, there's a lot of things going on here. But what we need to understand is that there's a responsibility on those who are the, what we're going to refer to as the lender, the rich, who are supporting the poor, the borrower. He who is dependent upon the one who is supplying the need. This passage is more about the attitude of the rich more than it is about the attitude of the poor. The lesson is more about the lender than the borrower. However, we're going to see that there's a lesson in both sides of this. Oftentimes, those that have to borrow, and in this case from the lender, they find themselves totally at the mercy of the lender. In other words, the rich who rules over the poor will often find themselves at the total mercy of what the rich will do or won't, won't, will not do for them. So there is an expectation that at some point the poor is going to expect mercy from the lender. What is the attitude of the lender? What is the attitude of the person who's been given much by God? What is his response to the one who needs the support? It has been said that the borrower is servant to the lender. Now, practical today application. If you, most of us, maybe you don't, most of us have a loan of some sort. You owe money to somebody. If you don't, praise the Lord for it. That's great. But if you do, you and I as borrowers, we are in subjection to that lender. We have to abide by the terms in which that lender has set forth. We are at their mercy. Uh, if we fail in our obligation to that lender, we sometimes will have to beg for mercy. Um, it has happened to many people. Many people have come to a place where for one reason or another, again, I'm giving you just a practical application where we have said, I cannot meet my obligation, whether it's a monthly payment or, or whatever, I can't meet my obligation. And we have had to reach out to the, bar, the lender and say, please have mercy on me. 
And oftentimes, depending on what kind of a loan or situation you're in, sometimes there is no mercy. And it says, if you cannot pay, then we will take back whatever it is that we gave you the resources to buy. Now again, this passage is not about, is it right to borrow money? This text is not about that. This text is about the attitude of those who will be ruling over those who are going to be in dependence upon the rich. Sometimes, even in this scenario, the one who borrows is going to have to beg and plead and maybe even say, have patience with me. You see, Proverbs 22.8 and Proverbs 22.7 are directly connected. What this means is, is that the rich who rule over the poor and the borrower is a servant to the lender, he that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity and the rod of his anger shall fail. The sowing iniquity here is in the context of how the, the rich rule over the poor. How does this man who's been gifted the resources, how does he treat he who is in dependence upon him? And if he does not rule him properly, he sows iniquity. He sows sin. The rich can misuse the blessing that God has given them by making the poor not only dependent, but making them submit themselves to him. Now again, as we start this, I want us to understand something here that God, there's a couple principles here that are going to end in verse 9 where it's going to say about what kind of an attitude should that lender actually have. Should it be one who puts another person into subjection or should it be one that has an eye, a bountiful eye, to give? This is not about should you borrow money. This is about the attitude of those who are ruling over towards those who are independents. According to the law of reaping and sowing, and we read Galatians 6, and I realize there is a larger context that Paul was dealing with in Galatians 6 about justification. He was dealing with justification and that the flesh could justify none. And the, the principles here is that in order to try to sow to the flesh, to try to rely upon your flesh, to, to give you a justified standing before God, it's, it's the epitome of foolishness. That it's only in Christ Jesus that we can stand justified. So reaping, you will reap what you sow. We've all heard messages on that, that whatever you, whatever you sow, you're going to reap the results of that. And in the, the terms of Galatians 6, Paul says, if, if you try to reap or you try to sow to the flesh for your justification, you are going to reap what you sow and that's going to end up failing you. Because you cannot be saved by your own flesh. And that's why Paul ends Galatians 6 by saying, I bear in my marks the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. I glory in nothing but the cross that accomplishes that justification. But there's a principle of sowing and reaping throughout the scriptures. In this particular case, we see that he that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity. Any misuse 
whether it's of power, whether it's a misuse of something else God has given, this is a promise that whatever you sow, you will reap for that. And in the true context of Scripture here, based upon who he's, who he's speaking about, the sowing iniquity here has to do with what's being said in verse 7 about how the rich rule over the poor. Notice it says, He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity, and the rod of his anger shall fail. It will not hold up. So first of all, let's look at this, and we're going to look at these headings are coming right from the text. So the first heading here is the borrower is servant to the lender. The borrower is servant, servant to the lender. The rich man who misuses his control over the poor man. He does it in a rigorous, oppressive, tyrannical manner. That is a misuse of it. If a rich lender rules well in a lawful, gentle, righteous manner, it is a commendable thing. This does not mean that all that are rich and that all that are the lender are bad people. But what it means is, is that there is a temptation to misuse the ability and the power to give to someone else. Anytime you give with an expectation of something being returned, you are putting that person in dependence upon you. So that person who borrows is a dependent upon the person who gave them the resources that they need. You are servant to them. Now again, this is not, again, I'm not about should you take out a loan. But notice that the borrower is servant to the lender. The poor man or the borrower being under the obligation to the lender is then forced to be subject to him and to comply with whatever his conditions are. Now again, you have to understand contextually, they are not talking about you going to the bank and signing a mortgage loan with all the fancy mortgage language. If this is about, which I believe that it is, is about the, the laws regarding masters and servants in the Old Testament, then there were conditions that that servant was obligated to fulfill under that master. That master could be a poor master. That master could misuse his power. He could abuse the servant. Now, the word slave has moved out of our common vernacular because of its connotations. But when you see the word slave in the Bible and servant, understand this, that many of the servants and the slaves were not being held against their will. They were actually being taken care of. Some men would put themselves in subjection to that master in order for their family to be taken care of. But by doing so, they became that master's property. Paul writes about this in the book of Colossians, and he touches on it in Ephesians about the relationship, masters and their servants. That's what's going on here. That master can be a bad one. He can misuse 
that servant. Now in those days, that master, maybe the servant would have to deal with just the master grew tired of him. And he would say, I'm going to put you and your family out. I've grown tired of you. The servant understands he's going to have to plead and beg for mercy. He's going to have to plead and beg, I don't want to be put out. He doesn't want to be mistreated. Sometimes the masters just would have a mood that would change and they would just decide, I'm done. God holds masters accountable for how they treated their servants. That's what this text in Proverbs is about. How do those that are in the role of master or lender treat those who are in servant or in as the borrower? The warning is against treating those who are indebted to you, treating them harshly, treating them unfairly. Now again, 7, 8, and 9 are one continuous contextual thought. So we kind of kind of see how this how this fills back and what the right attitude that the rich should have towards his servant. But the borrower is servant to the lender. Second heading, he that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity. So the Bible often uses this familiar picture of sowing and reaping. We can understand what he means by the cycle of crops. In a few weeks, they're going to go out into the fields around us. They're going to begin broadcasting scattering seed. They do it about the same time every year with the expect, expectation of the same results every year in the fall that what they sowed in those fields is going to produce what they needed. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. So over a longer period of time, though, that goes beyond what a typical season of sowing in the field would be, there's a greater principle here concerning our actions. Now again, I've given you the context of what Galatians 6, 7, and 8 is about. But the principle of this sowing and reaping is also found in Job 4, chapter, uh, chap, Job chapter 4, verse 8, and Hosea 10, verses 12 through 13, with a warning that whatever you sow... Be warned, you're going to reap what you sow. Notice again what it said in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Sowing the seeds of sin will lead you to corruption. Sowing the seeds of the Spirit, reap life everlasting. He's not talking about works-based salvation. But you see the principle. So he that sows iniquity or sin shall reap vanity. So what comes up when a man sows sin? He who plants seeds of sin or practices sin who is frequent in the commission of it, indulges in it, just as the sower who goes out in those fields in a couple weeks and sows the seed all over the ground, he who sows sin, such a person who sows sin and wickedness is going to reap the sin in which they sowed. 
So be warned that whatever you sow, you're going to reap the consequences of that. So if your life right now is filled with sowing of sin, you're going to reap the consequences of that. Paul made mention that be not deceived. God is not mocked. You're, you're not going to be able to sow the seed of sin and get away with it. Now again, Paul was writing in the context of our justification, but the principle is all throughout Scripture, God is not mocked. Again, contextually, he's talking about the ruler, the master who sows iniquity by the sinful treatment of the borrower or treatment to that borrower. He says if you are doing that to them, you are going to reap the consequences of that. What a man sows, he will reap. He'll eat the fruit of his doings. And he'll have the reward of his works. One of the greatest mis... I won't call it a misunderstanding, but what the person who is in sin fails to keep in mind is that they are going to eat the fruit of what they sowed. You may not eat that fruit in a day. You might not eat that fruit in a week. You might not even see the root, the fruit of that for years. But you will reap what you sowed. If we sow wickedness, we're going to reap wickedness. One of the great burdens of my heart, and I hope the great burdens of our church is, is that we do not become comfortable sowing the seeds of sin. That we just simply allow sin to become our manner of life. See, we ought to be begging God to bring repentance to us. We ought to be begging God to bring us to repentance. To take away our love for some sin that we are, we all have, again, I, I don't mean to offend, but we all have a pet sin that you love. And it's that sin, it's that sin that we keep sowing that we are going to reap the fruit of. Now, God knows what that is. I don't know what it is, but God does. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. In the realm of this relationship between the master and the servant, the lender and the borrower, God sends that same message. If you sow wickedness, you're going to reap what you sowed. Vanity, worthlessness. If a master renders or sows injustice towards his servant, he's going to receive injustice back. If he treats his servant harshly, he is going to be treated harshly himself. In the end, here's what this means. That lender, that master, will never have the pleasure or profit of what he thought he was sowing, but rather he's going to reap the wicked, evil results of his sin. 
That's true about every one of us too with our own sin. You might, you might be here tonight and you might say, well, I've, I've gotten away with this for decades. You haven't gotten away with it. The fruit's coming. The wickedness that you sown, that you sowed, is coming. Are you forgiven if you're in Christ? Absolutely. Does it affect your standing before God and your justification? No. If you're in Christ, you, you are in Christ and you are secure. But that's another reason why Paul himself said, grace is not a license to sin. Grace does not give you should not even give you the desire to sin. It should make you desire sin less. But the reality is, is that we haven't all reaped what we've sown yet. But God says, I will not be mocked. Notice it says, and the rod of his anger shall fall, or fail rather. Because of the heavy-handed way in which the master or the lender ruled and treated others in a cruel and angry manner, his authority will be taken from him. It'll fail. Rod there is a picture of authority. The rod of his anger, the, the man of fury. It'll fail. He will become subject to other people in the end, and he will be treated in a like manner. It's so that thing we always try to tell our kids about the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. It's the same principle of sowing and reaping. You treat and mistreat and deal with people harshly, you can expect that to come back on you. See, that's the great problem that we have. We are, we are too tempted to just play around with sin and think it doesn't really affect anything. Some of us are messing around with sin now, and it doesn't even, it's not even, it's not even registering in our heart that we should be putting this away. Because we've become comfortable with it. We've been sowing that seed for so long. A wicked man that sows iniquity. Again, just like the farmer that goes out here in a few weeks and plants that seed, he goes out to harvest. He thinks he's going to have a banner crop. But when he gets out to the field, it's all rotted. So wait a minute. I, I, I sowed the seed. But you sowed wickedness. And the seed that you sowed produced what you planted. Wickedness. See, we have a problem also understanding that it seems that the wicked things of this world and the wicked people of this world are getting away with something. I want you to understand they're not getting away with anything. God's not blind. God's not Oh, I don't realize how there are people that are being oppressed. I don't see my church being oppressed. I don't see this happening. He sees it all. And the great assurance we have, friends, is that that's the reality that what wicked rulers sow, they are going to reap. 
God is not mocked. God is not deceived. You see, the principle of sowing and reaping is, yes, it's deeply, a deep conviction to each one of us. But it also ought to be deeply encouraging, realizing that God's eyes are not blind to what's going on. In Isaiah 14, verses 5 through 7, Isaiah writes these words. He says, The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindereth. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. See, one day God is going to break the staff of every evil, wicked ruler and he's going to remove their scepter. That's why I love the truth of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I heard a preacher this afternoon and just encouraged my heart so deeply. He said, you know, one of the grand differences and one of the great things about being a Reformed Baptist, and I love the fact he said it that way, is he said, we believe in the total, absolute sovereignty of God. And not everybody believes that. Not just Reformed Baptists, but I like the way he said that because that's what I identify by because I believe that's biblical. But he says, we believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, which means there's not a single thing in this world that's going on that is not under the control and the watchful eye and the ordaining hand of God. The Bible tells us he sets up rulers, even the wicked ones, but says he'll also take them down. The promise that Isaiah speaks here is about the staff of the wicked and the scepter of authority being removed. He talks about those who smote the people. And yet we see such a practical application here. We see also in verse 8 from a practical standpoint that this verse provides an encouragement here that he that sows iniquity shall reap vanity and the rod of his anger shall fail. We're encouraged by the reality that the oppressed can find hope even in their oppression. That last line that their anger shall fail. That last line and that, last, that verse assures us that those who are oppressed by harsh, unruly rulers, lenders, will eventually be broken and the rod will be removed. The scepter will be taken. God will make the rod of his anger. He'll make them to fail. He'll destroy the power of those who are sowing iniquity right now. That's the promises that we have. We have a little problem of wanting things done on our timing though, don't we? We know when God should move. We know when God should act. Or we like to tell God, God, you need to move now. Or we can rest in the promises that says, he who is sowing in iniquity ultimately is going to fail. And he's going to reap whatever he has sowed. This rod, this symbol of suppression, his rod will also perish with him. That's an encouragement for everyone who's being suppressed and oppressed. Now again, I don't know if it, this is the right word, but sadly, we don't fully understand 
full Christian oppression yet. But we have brethren around the world who do, who every day they get up and they're under the hand of wicked rulers who are not just making bad laws, but wicked rulers who are taking people out of public streets and out of their private homes and executing them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you think this is hopeful to those who say one day God is going to take the scepter away from those who are oppressing us? And yet this is so practical even in our day-to-day life about what our attitude should be towards others. Now look at verse 9, and it looks like, again, the Proverbs become difficult because sometimes we think there are many disjointed thoughts, and they're really not. Look at verse 9. He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. I want you to notice there's, there's something different here. The rich ruler is mentioned in verse 7 as being a lender. The one with a bountiful eye is referred to who's blessed is being referred to as a what? A giver. Which means the one who has a bountiful eye is not looking to put someone else in subjection, to make them dependent, but is rather has an eye to giving, to meeting the need. This is the if you will, let me use the term, the flip side of the two previous verses. The Bible clearly says there's a reward for he who is bountiful. A bountiful eye means to be generous. A person or a ruler or a rich individual, a lender, if you will, who is charitable and gives. The reward here implies that there is a blessing of God. This is not about just being rich. It's not about temporal riches. But he's different. He doesn't lend like the rich ruler does. He gives. He shares. What it, look what it says. He shares of his bread. He gives out of his abundance. Again, this is not about is it right to take out a loan. It's about what should our attitude be. We should be people who are givers. We should be people who give out of our own. He who is blessed, if he happens to be rich, he who is blessed with that shares of his own bread with the poor. He shares with the needy. He shares with them, and here's what he doesn't demand back. He doesn't put them as a debtor to him because he gives it to them. It's a big difference. You realize when you put somebody in debt to you, you're putting them in servanthood to you. He says the bountiful eye, the person who's generous, says, listen, I'm not going to put you in subjection to me. I'm going to give it to you. Now, I've already meddled a little bit, so I'll meddle a little bit more. 
And I'm meddling with myself also. There is nothing that will drive us to be pull back more than when we start talking about giving out of our own abundance. Giving of ourselves. Giving of whatever God has given to us. And this is not a sermon about money. Say, oh, go, here we go. Pastor's never preached on money. Now he's start, I'm not preaching on money. I'm preaching on having a bountiful eye. I'm not even talking about the giving of, to this church. I'm talking about having a bountiful eye towards those who are in need, those who are poor. Giving of our own. This is the way of giving is the example of God. It's the way that God the Father gave us of the Son. You realize we've been given the grace and the mercy and the glory of God without a single demand of being compensating Him for what's happened. We know we couldn't do it anyway. We couldn't buy our salvation. We couldn't buy our redemption. But what have we, what have we been given in Jesus Christ? We have been given salvation. He is not holding our salvation over our head. We are not called servants. We're called sons and daughters of God. Imagine a salvation that tried to teach you that yes, you're saved, but you're also, you have this obligation you're going to have to meet if you want to stay saved. God's word clearly says here that he that hath a bountiful heart shall be blessed. Doesn't say he might be, says he will be. This is the way of giving like God gives. A bountiful eye is also translated a good eye. A person who looks around himself, looks around herself for proper ways to do good. We were reading in Galatians 6 about what our attitude towards the brethren, and it talks about not losing opportunities, but looking for opportunities to do good. That's what it means to have a bountiful eye. Look for opportunities to be generous. Deal with people cheerfully. Deal with people bountifully. It says he shall be blessed. Now this doesn't necessarily mean temporal blessings, but there are spiritual blessings for doing good. That principle of sowing and reaping and reaping bad things upon yourself, if you sow good things, there are the promises of God that talk about the blessings of God. What we do and how we give comes from the principle of understanding what grace really is. Remember that story that Jesus told in the, in the Gospels about the servant about the master who loaned and gave the money and he was harsh and he, would, he, would not, he was not going to give any sort of reprieve. He demanded. He was not going to forgive the debt. You realize there are times, even in our Christian life, the best thing and the most biblical thing you need to do is forgive the debt. Something else, it's, it's destroying Christians and it's just, it's, it, we're not, we're, folks, we're, we are not exempt from this. Is the lack of forgiveness towards other Christians 
and other brethren, it's going to eat you alive. And if you sow the seeds of bitterness and unforgiveness, you are going to reap what you sow. We are told to forgive. Not seven times. Seven times 70 doesn't mean 490 times, 491, I don't have to forgive. No, Jesus was saying there is no limit to how many times you forgive. Again, that's very difficult because we want to say, but what about? Listen, the household of faith that Paul made mention, the household of God looking at opportunities to do good. Sometimes that seed of sin that we're sowing, it's bitterness. Everywhere you go, you're sowing seeds of bitterness. Every day that goes by that you won't forgive, you're sowing seeds of bitterness. And what's going to happen? According to the biblical principles of sowing and reaping, that unforgiveness, that bitterness is going to come right back on your head. And the moment and the day when you want someone to give you forgiveness, it's not going to be there. The reality is, is this is a principle, not just about giving of money. This is about even our attitude about how we treat people. The only way we can do this, the only way you can forgive properly is to have a view of the grace that Jesus Christ has saved you with. The only way you can forgive people who've hurt you is to have a view to the glory of God. Forgiveness is dependent upon the grace of God. The righteousness of Christ. He who forgives, he who has a bountiful eye, he who is sowing seeds of goodness, not the seeds of sin, is proving themselves to be in a state of grace. So if you claim you've been saved by grace, but you live as if you have not, you're giving evidence of something opposite than what it should be. He giveth of his bread. He sees someone in genuine need. He sees someone who is needs from what he can give, and he gives a part of what he owns. He gives it with the right intentions. He doesn't give it as the Pharisee, hoping someone will see him hoping someone will build a statue to his name, hoping someone will give him, put his name on a brick on a pathway somewhere that look, here's what I gave. He just simply gives because he has an eye to the grace that saved him and forgave him. You know, so much has left, and I know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit this to you, this is not the type of preaching that riles people up and gets them excited. And the reason it doesn't is because this is the practical day-to-day life that things we should be doing. We just want these big, exciting, let's always talk about, uh, about the deep doctrines, and they're important. But folks, if you don't get these things right, if you don't get the practical, everyday biblical life right, your doctrine doesn't mean much. If you're an unforgiving expert theologian, it doesn't mean much. If you have unforgiveness and, and most of the week you're sowing seeds of iniquity, it doesn't matter what you know about the Bible. See, these kind of things make people mad because I'm not, I'm not that person. 
I'm the most, I'm the most forgiving, forgiving people, person anybody knows. I forgive. Really? So who's still left that you haven't forgiven? Who are you bitter to? Who are you bitter towards right now? See, this isn't just about money. A bountiful eye looking to those who are in need, looking for those things, and then giving. A hand that is charitable is proof of a, an eye and a heart that's been saved by grace. I set out when I started studying earlier this week, I was only going to cover verses 7 and 8 because I had fallen into that trap. And I, I, when, I, when I go and prepare, I look and I look ahead and I say, okay, well, 7 and 8 are related. Verse 9 has nothing to do with 7 and 8. And it wasn't until a day or so ago I looked and I said, wait a minute. <laughs> this is not disjointed. This is actually part of what he's trying to teach us here. This bountiful eye, is a, it's a wonderful expression. An eye to see a need. An eye to anticipate where a help might be needed. Along with a willingness and an ability to provide to meet it. At one's expense, it's one's own expense, that's what it's saying. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is he that considereth the poor, the Lord will deliver him in a time of trouble. I hope and I pray that what we see here tonight is something that we all understand, that there are aspects of our Christian life that should be evident, should be manifested, but also, if we are sowing seeds of iniquity. Look, folks, I'm going to ask our church to do something. I'm going to ask our church to pray that, that, that if that's happening in any of us, that it gets driven out. And it might be you it needs to be driven out of. I know if that's me, if I'm sowing iniquity, I want my church family praying for that. I want my church family praying for that iniquity to be driven out of me. Because if you're sowing iniquity as a child of God, you should be miserable right now. <laughs> it, it might seem pleasurable for a season, but the very fact that we're sowing that seed should make us miserable. I hope that we'll understand that what Solomon wrote about here is much more than just, should I take out a loan? First time I heard this passage preached, that's, that's how the pastor covered it. And he went down a 10-step program as to, should I borrow money? It's not what this is about. This is, this is about how we treat people and how we've been treated by God himself. Folks, we did not deserve God to show us the mercy that he has shown us. You still don't deserve it. Every day, God is merciful and just. He's forgiving. He's forgiving you of the sins of the past, the sins of the day, and the sins of tomorrow, and the sin you're going to commit 10 years from now. That's a gracious and good God. And we should rejoice 
That's the pattern. We ought to have that kind of forgiving spirit. We ought to have that kind of a bountiful eye towards people that say, look, I want, to, I want to meet that need. I don't want people to be dependent upon me. If I can give, I'm going to give. If I can help, I'm going to help. And if I'm sowing iniquity, your most important step right now is repentance. If I'm sowing iniquity, repentance. May God help us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you.